Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We started chapter 11 last week. We'll finish it uh, this morning. And while you're turning there, let me make you aware of two things. As you see a table, speaking of table, in uh, a little less than two weeks now, there's going to be a gathering of men here at the church, a men's breakfast. Uh, There will be meat and other food. Uh, So... Uh, men come together. There's going to be some teaching, some fellowship. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, make plans that Saturday, the 22nd, that morning. You can look up on the website and find out how to get plugged into that event here at the church. The other thing is this. Around the table, uh, there is a group of us not here today because they are out at Hanging Rock Camp, which is one of the missions we support uh, doing a work project weekend. Uh, and so they're out there, multiple families from New Hope, uh, serving in a very wet weekend uh, to be doing work, but they're there, and so we want to remember them uh, in our prayers this morning and thank them and, and learn more about what's going on there when they get back. So let me go ahead and pray for us uh, again, and we'll, we'll jump into God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you for your Word, and as we open it this morning, we ask for your blessing upon us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us what you want us to hear? And Father, we submit ourselves to that in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've often uh, said, even from this stage, that I think one of the greatest gifts that God gives to us as people is the feeling of gratitude. You've probably heard me say that multiple times. That feeling, I think there's maybe no word in our language that fails to capture the feeling that goes with the word that's trying to describe it, like gratitude. When I say gratitude, I'm not talking about uh, that surface level, I'm just thankful for this, or this makes me happy. I'm talking about that deep sense of Man, because of this experience, things change. I will remember this forever. Gratitude. Let me give you an example. It's like 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series, okay? For some people, bear with me, some people, some of you are like, ugh, Cubs. Uh, Some people were thankful that their team had finally won, right? Other people, man, they were excited. They wanted to, man, this is probably not going to ever happen again. And so this was awesome. And we're excited that they won a title. Sorry, you you caught the dig. (laughs) Uh, And yet for a very few, I think, there was this profound sense of gratitude. People like Wayne Williams. Wayne and his dad, when he was a young boy, made this pact, this covenant, this agreement. That if the Cubs ever made it to the World Series, no matter where they were, they were going to sit together and listen to the games on the radio. Well, Wayne's dad died in 1980. So in 2016, when the Cubs make it to the World Series, just before Game 7, Wayne got in his car in North Carolina and drove to a cemetery in Greenwood, Indiana, and sat at his dad's grave and listened to Game 7 and wept. Sure, because his team won, but really because that made him remember his dad. And when everybody else is celebrating, here's a guy sitting at a cemetery experiencing profound Gratitude. See, gratitude, for many of you, one of the places I think you probably experienced gratitude, maybe more than anywhere else, was seated at a table. And if we were to sit and talk, you would tell me about the memories that took place around that table in your house. For many of you, maybe it's the high-low experience, you know what I'm talking about, where you sit around the table and everybody goes around and says, what's the high point of your day, what are you thankful for, and what was the low point, what was hard for you today, and you go around the table and you share those thoughts, and for at least those few moments, everybody in the house gets a chance to talk, right? You remember the meals that took place around the table where 
you go around and everybody gets to share their experiences and what they're feeling and, and everybody gets to be heard as you share memories and stories and you laugh together. Maybe for you, the table when you were growing up was this place where everything, at least for these precious few moments, slowed down just a little bit. I mean, the homework schedule, the ball practices, the band practices, the phone calls, the work, the laptops, everything, at least for those few moments, goes away and everybody's focused and everybody's together and you form memories. And when someone gets sick or somebody dies, someone gets married or has a baby or buys a house, you sit around the table and you share together. My father-in-law um, told me this week, he grew up in a preacher's home, um, and so uh, his dad was the president of a Bible college, and he says some of his most profound memories happened around their table and their home. As a Bible college president, they would often entertain visiting missionaries and preachers and other professors that were coming in. And, and my father-in-law says that they would oftentimes find themselves seated around their table. And he says, sure, the food was good and seating, sitting around the table was great. But when the meal ended came the hours of conversation that he said just shaped him, molded him. He says, as a young man getting to sit and listen to missionaries and preachers and professors talk and share stories, man, what a profound experience. And he found himself feeling gratitude, a sense of gratitude that all these years later, he can easily recall how he felt. I mean, maybe you've been there. You've sat around the table. You've had that sense, that feeling. My wife and I recently took a uh, trip to Chicago, not, not too recently, but uh, we took a trip to Chicago with some friends, no Cubs analogies here, uh, but we did uh, gather with these friends from all over the place, and we found ourselves uh, each night, and this was one of those trips where you didn't bring the kids, and so it was just, you're able to just not think about much and just be together with your friends, and we're seated around a table every night at different places, going to different restaurants, and I'll just never forget laughing till I hurt, sharing memories together. These are some of our closest friends, and, and to me, honestly, it almost felt like I had this out-of-body experience in a sense where I was floating over the table just taking in the great conversation and the fun and I found myself thinking man good food good friends gratitude good food good friends gratitude I like the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a German theologian explained how especially as believers but really just around the table people should enjoy their meals together he said these words, people should not eat the bread of sorrows. God cannot endure this unfestive, mirthless attitude of ours in which we eat our bread in sorrow with pretentious, busy haste or even with shame. Through our daily meals, he is calling us to rejoice, to keep holiday in the midst of the working day. I love that. The tables where we keep holiday in the midst of the working day, we experience good food, good friends, and gratitude. You see this throughout the Bible, too. There's, there's multiple experiences that you could point to. I think about the life of Jesus written in the Gospels, and where my mind goes is to the Gospel of Luke. I don't know if you knew this, but if you read through the Gospel of Luke, there are 10 different times where Jesus has a meal with people, 10 different times where he sits down. And there's multiple stories you could go to. My mind always drifts toward two in particular that deal with these tax collectors, one of them's name was Matthew. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Nobody wanted to be around them. Nobody would want to sit and eat a meal with a tax collector because eating a meal with somebody in that day signified friendship, connection, almost approval. I love you. I see you. I care for you. 
the table was significant. And so to invite a tax collector, someone who had robbed people and mistreated them, taken their money, it would be like sitting down with someone from the IRS as they were auditing you saying, let's share a meal together. Like, you're never going to do that. Like, that's just an uncomfortable situation, let alone they took it to a whole other level and they were cheating them and stealing from them. And then they sat at a table and everything changed. The first encounter is from a guy named Matthew. Uh, the text will call him Levi. His name's uh, later changed to Matthew. It's found in Luke chapter 5. It says these words. Then Levi, that's, that's Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors. So you just think like meeting in the IRS building, right? And others were, I'm sorry, that's not fair. If you're like, like that's not, it, it's way worse back then. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this table, this meal, is going to change their lives. But will you let it change yours? This experience with me will transform them forever. Do you want a seat at the table too, Pharisee? I love that. The next one comes in a story with a man named Zacchaeus, who was this ultimate tax collector, if you will, who was specializing in stealing things from people and just not being a good man at all. The text and the famous song goes that he was a wee little man. Uh, and when Jesus came to town, he hid in a sycamore tree. Well, I think there's some level of truth to that. Maybe he was hiding because he, or trying to get up there because he was a wee little man, but I truly think he was hiding. He was despised, hated. Sycamore trees had giant leaves. It was an easy place to not be seen. And Jesus comes and says, hey, come out of the tree. Why? Because we're going to your house and we're going to sit at your table and we're going to share a meal. And I love this because Zacchaeus has Jesus into the home. They sit around the table and the text in, in Luke chapter 19 says this, but Zacchaeus stood up after the meal and said, I am changed forever. I'm changed forever because of this meal. And I've stolen stuff from a lot of people and I'm done stealing from them. Lord, whatever I've taken from them, I will pay it back four times. Jesus sits back and says, Salvation has come to this home. Salvation has come to this home. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, these meals around these tables in the Gospel of Luke, they started with grace and ended with complete and total transformation. A seat at the table with Jesus. This is what the church in Corinth began to get wrong. They stopped seeing the table as a place of good food, good friends, and gratitude. They started seeing it a lot different. And so in our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to break it down into three areas, three quick sections here. He's going to explain what the problem was. He's going to remind them what the purpose was, and he's going to lead them back to what the solution is. So the problem begins in verse 17. He says these words, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. So it's starting out strong. Like, that's what you want to hear, right? Like, hey, what I'm about to tell you, you guys are horrible at this. <laughs> Your meetings do more harm than good. And we're not going to camp out on this first verse, but I do want to just put a thought in your mind. Imagine the weight, the Apostle Paul's words, coming to our gathering and saying, your gathering does more harm than good. That's heavy. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are more divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe this. 
No doubt there have been differences among you so that, to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. All right, here we go. He is not holding back. This is one of those moments where the Apostle Paul says, this table is to be understood correctly. And when it's not, when it's not, we have to, in order to maintain unity, get it right. See, in their days, the early church practice of communion was not so far off from what we do, though a lot of people would claim that maybe it is. In the early church, they would participate in their gathering of worship in remembering the Lord through this. But they would return in the evenings, oftentimes for these big meals called agape feasts, where they would sit around a table and they would share in a big meal. They would have good wine and, and great foods, and they would sit together, and it was for the purpose of remembering the Lord Jesus. In the church at Corinth, they met in different homes. And so you got a picture. It wasn't a building like this. It was multiple homes around the city of Corinth. And the wealthier people in the church would have been the people that owned these homes that could be big enough to gather multiple people in them. And therefore, the wealthier people had all of the access to the home and the resources. So you keep that in mind. The other thing is this. In Corinth, if you were wealthier, you had a lot more freedom in your schedule. You had the money. You were able to work. You, were, you had resources. Therefore, if there was a dinner party, you had the ability to arrive early. And if you were wealthy, you could arrive early, bring the nicer foods, bring the more choice wine, all these different things. You're coming together, and you would, you would have these dinner parties, these agape feasts. What began to take place that created the division in the church was the wealthy people showed up early, and in these homes, you'd have different rooms. You'd have a dining room, if, if you would. I don't think they called it that, but you'd have a dining room. And when people arrived, they would fill this out. As more people arrived, you'd fill different rooms in the house. Ultimately, courtyards, atriums would get filled with people. Well, in Corinth, the wealthier people were getting to the dinner early. And when they got to the dinner early, they would come and they would sit around the table. And then the dining room would fill up with the wealthy people, with the people that had more resources, leaving those who had to get off of work late. And you're thinking, wait, Sabbath in Rome, they didn't honor that. And so if you needed to provide for your family, oftentimes you had to work. And you were showing up and you weren't a Christian before. You were a pagan person before. You become a Christian. You're coming to these agape feasts. And what takes place is you're getting there a little bit later. And when you get there a little bit later, guess what table was full? So you're left to go to an atrium or a courtyard, and you're just kind of left out of it. And Paul begins to hear about this, that all of the food and all of the wine, these people are getting drunk. They're sinning. They're making the table something it was never intended to be. They're hoarding all of the food. They're not sharing it with anybody. And the whole big meal that was intended to remember Jesus, which Jesus would never be cool with anyone ever getting drunk, sitting at the table, leaving all these other people with leftovers, with less than. The Apostle Paul comes and says, that is unacceptable because the table is a place of gratitude. The table is a place that somehow you lost your way and you forgot that the table is a place where you come to a seat and you don't deserve to be there. Gratitude comes from our idea of grace. Grace is a gift that you deserve, that you receive that you do not deserve. So he says, when you come to this table, you come and sit around the table. You don't deserve to be at the table. 
And you Christians in Corinth seem to have forgotten that when you sit around this table, your seat at the table was a gift. You didn't earn it. It doesn't matter how much money you have, your social status, your socioeconomic status, your achievements, what you've done, who you've helped. None of that matters because you don't deserve a seat at the table, and yet one has been given to you, and somehow you forgot about it, and a sense of entitlement settled in. And that entitlement grew like a cancer into full-blown division in the church. And the Apostle Paul says, enough enough. So now he's going to go back and remind them what this table was really all about and why it's important for them to remember the significance of this table. Let me tell you this. This is a text we go to often. It is vitally important for us as we take communion for us to understand the purpose of why we do this. Like, why do we do it every week? One of the things, one of the questions we get asked often at New Hope is, why do you take communion every week? I hope that question gets answered here in this next part. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So again, pause. I won't do this the whole morning, but pause with me for another moment. The Apostle Paul was not there during the life of Jesus. He became a Christian after Jesus had resurrected and ascended. And so when Paul says, I received from the Lord, well, in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul it tells us that he spent some time uh, with the Lord and supernaturally received from the Lord the ministry that the Lord had given to him. So in that time when Paul is receiving from the Lord right? The ability to go be an apostle, receiving from the Lord what he needs to pass on. The Lord thought it important. And Paul says, I received from him. I'm not making this up. I'm not just passing this on. This isn't from Peter. This isn't from, this is from the Lord. I'm passing this on to you, which means what he's about to say, we should probably lean in and pay attention to, because this comes directly from the Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is a pretty interesting thing. It says, The Lord Jesus at that meal stood up from the table, and he grabbed the bread in front of the disciples. Now, what do you think the disciples are, 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 what's coming to their mind here when they think this? Well, in a typical Seder meal, right, what would take place is the head of the household would stand up and take the bread, and he would break, the, he, before breaking, he would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate when they were delivered from Egypt. And they would break the bread, right? And I'm probably not saying it exactly, but that's the gist of what they would say, Okay. So when Jesus stands up and takes the bread, the disciples are thinking, well, yeah, this is what he's doing. We're celebrating Passover. He's going to say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate when they were delivered from Egypt. And so he's going to break it. But then Jesus says, no, this is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. Pour it out for you. That is not what they were expecting to hear. So where is their mind going? And what is Jesus doing when he says these words? We come to a time of communion every week when we say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. What are we trying to say? What was Jesus thinking when he said that? Well, Jesus is redefining the entire Passover through himself. Now that requires a little bit of history. The story of the Passover is when, when the Israelites, God's people, were held captive by, the, uh, by Egypt for 400 years then were then delivered. When they were delivered, Moses comes and, and he uses these 10 plagues. And the 10th plague was the plague of the firstborn, meaning the angel of the Lord was going to come over the land. And if you did not cover the doorpost of your home in the blood of a, spot, a spotless lamb as a sacrifice, a signal 
then your firstborn would be taken, would die. Well, then the people, they take a spotless lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, and as a result, the angel would pass over their home. Thus, we celebrate the Passover. In addition to that, God then took them, those who the angel had passed over, delivered them from Egypt, the splitting of the sea, walking through the water. He split the sea. They walked through it to their freedom from captivity. And now what Jesus is saying is, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. What he's saying to them is this. You have been held captive by sin forever. And your sin still holds you captive to this day. But I'm going to give my body and my blood so that death will pass over you. You will not die. You will live forever if you are found in me, if this sacrifice is made on your behalf. That's what he's saying. So whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. What what he's saying then is this. Every time we participate in communion, we are proclaiming yes to ourselves, yes to one another, and to a watching world. That though I carry sin and guilt and shame, his death covers them. And I am proclaiming his death and the partaking of these elements because all of my sins have been forgiven by his blood. Now, you realize if that's the significance of this, you don't deserve to be at this table. The Apostle Paul is reminding the church at Corinth, you do not deserve a seat at this table because you did nothing to cover your own sins, to forgive yourself, to free yourself from the captivity to sin. You did nothing. That was done for you. And what a difference it makes. When I think about the significance of what it would have been like, even just thinking about what it would have been like sitting at that table, I knew that was going to happen, sitting at that table with Jesus, technology, I love it. When I think about sitting at the table with Jesus at the Last Supper, what it would have been like to be seated there, to hear him say that, to have your mind blown by what he was trying to communicate to you in that moment, I always come back to the Apostle John. John's seated with Jesus at the table, and he talks about the significance of that moment. And in John chapter 13, he writes these words. He says, the one, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus at the table. Now, they would have not been seated in chairs like this. They would have been reclined back on the floor, seated around a table where they were going to eat. And John, when he's writing this history of Jesus' life, points out, I was the one seated next to him. I was the one reclined up next to him. And you've heard me say this before. I think it's one of the most profound examples of intimacy in all of the Bible. Because in that moment, John would have been leaning up against Jesus and literally listening to the heartbeat of God. Think about that. Wow. And then Jesus stood up, he says. And he explained that he was the new Passover lamb. That somehow our sins would be, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand what was taking place. I didn't connect the dots. I didn't quite understand it. But that moment at that table changed his life forever. And we know that because if you fast forward to John chapter 21, Jesus has resurrected. He's on the standing at the shore. The disciples are out in a boat. They can't catch any fish. He says, cast your net on the other side. I'm telling you, this is, you'll catch some fish. And they didn't quite get it. Then they recognize it's Jesus. They recognize. And here's how John describes it. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? What he is referring to himself is this. This is why this is so profound to me. He's thinking about his life, and he's thinking about describing himself in his history, and he has to include, not only am I the disciple whom Jesus loved, but I'm, I'm the one that was at the table that day. 
reclining next to him. That moment was so profound in John's life, it changed everything for him. When he's leaning back next to Jesus, something about that table and what took place at that table changed his whole life forever. To the point when he would describe his life, he included the table. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was sitting next to him at the table when his words changed everything. And we didn't get it at the time, but man, it's changed everything since. This impact of being at this table, participating in this meal, changes all of our lives. It reminds us of his presence. It reminds us that he's with us, this table. Like, man, no matter what I've gone through this week, no matter how many poor choices I've made, no matter how many times I've slipped up and messed up, I come to this time and I get to partake in this meal and it changes everything. It reminds me of his presence. I like the way Robert Weber, he's a professor, describes, he uses the Emmaus Road uh, as an example to describe how this could signify the presence of Jesus because Jesus was all about breaking bread and having a meal with his disciples and the significance of it. Here's the words he writes. In the Emmaus Road account, this is after Jesus resurrected and he's walking down the road. His disciples don't recognize him, but then they do. Jesus went through the same fourfold actions as he did in the Last Supper. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. When the disciples returned to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what had happened, they told them how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they didn't know it was him until they saw him break the bread. And then they saw it's him. He's resurrected. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they knew it was the Lord, and Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them. The breaking of bread in the early Christian community may have been a means of recalling the very presence of Jesus, who was made known in the breaking of the bread. One of the most important commands in all of Scripture, apart from fear not, is remember. Remember. Remember where he's taken you. Remember where he has you. Remember where he said he's going to take you. Remember. And one of the places we do our best remembering is at the table. I mean, that's true in your life. That's true in the church. We sit and we remember. Now, Paul tries to remind them, you've got to reconnect with a sense of gratitude. And the best way to do that is to examine. Look at how he describes this, verse 27. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So he says, hey, if you don't do this right, if we don't get this right, we are guilty of sinning against the Lord. It's important. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat, the, eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we, are to, if we were more discerning and re- with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we were judged in, the way, in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when they eat, come together, it will not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instruction. So he's saying, hey, this whole idea of some of you eating in this room and others of you being left out, some of you feasting and others of you having famine, that's got to go away. Eat before you show up to the meal if you have to so that when you show up, you're ready to share. And when he says examine yourself, it's twofold, okay? The first thing many people go to, and this is why when we serve communion, we have the elements that we give you that you have with you right now. We'll have this time where you are sitting to reflect and examine, and that's important, and you should do that during communion. But what Paul is trying to tell the church at Corinth is not just to examine themselves, though they have to. 
Examine their relationship with one another. How are you treating your brothers and sisters in Christ? How is the church getting along? Is there unity? Is there division? Because if there's division, don't eat and drink. Fix the division so that this table becomes a place of great unity. You have to take this seriously. In addition, we do examine ourselves personally. I don't know about you, but I need this meal. Let me tell you why I am so grateful for communion every week. Because I need it. I mean, every week when we come to this time, I'm reminded to examine my own life. And I think about my own struggles. I think about the times that I've sinned and the shame and the guilt that I carry throughout the week. I mean, I came into it this morning thinking about it. I'll give you an example. Last night, I was coming home from my son was playing basketball up in Lafayette. And we're driving home and everything's good. And I get this phone call from Jody Lamb. Hey, so uh, you were supposed to do a baptism at the church at like 6 it's 7.30 when she's calling me, so that's great. And I'm driving home, and I'm like, I totally forgot. They had shown up. Doors are locked. Ugh. Immediately, the guilt hit. So I call. They were the most gracious people ever. They came up to the church. We did it at 8 o'clock. We'll tell you more about it next week. It was awesome. But I carried this shame and this guilt of letting people down, of messing up, of being reminded yet again that I just don't have it all figured out. So when I come and I, I'm reminded, I don't deserve to be at this table. I forget people. I make mistakes. I sin all the time. Like I've messed up all week. And I come and I sit at this table. I feel like a tax collector. I come and I sit and I'm like, are you sure you want me here? Like, are you sure? I've messed up so much. And he's like, yeah, this is your table. This is where things change. This is where I can transform you. Because you're reminded you don't deserve this, but it's a gift. And the table's been set, and the food is good, and the friendship's incredible, and the gratitude comes each and every week. Let me close this out this way. Sometimes you come across stories that are just wonderful, and you're reminded of what it means to examine your own life, what it means to be forgiven, to really remember that. And this one's a little bit more lighthearted, but it was so good. I want to read you how he told it because he tells it better than I can retell it. This is from a, a man named Mike Graves. He's a Bible college professor, so he's taught preaching. That's vitally important for you to remember as I read this story. He is a Bible college professor. Keep that in mind, okay? When a colleague and I were invited to be a part of a former student's ordination service, we agreed enthusiastically and traveled together to his town. Joe had many family members coming to the service, so we were surprised when he told us that there were, we were all going to be eating out at a restaurant. I wondered how 19 of us were going to get in and out of a restaurant in time for church, so I suggested my colleague and I go ahead to the, re to the restaurant and put our name in for the waiting list. The restaurant was packed. I wiggled through the crowd to the front of the line, and I found an Amish man standing behind an old pulpit. Next to him was a hand-carved sign that said, Please do not give your name until everyone in your party is present. You can see where this is going, right? I understood the reason for the restaurant's policy, but I also knew that it would take a long time for a table of 19 to be ready. I said, yes, the name is Graves, party of 19. And the Amish man with his beard and hat looked at me and said, and is your whole party present? Haltingly, I said, yes. Okay, I lied. But it wasn't as if I were trying to beat the system. After all, even the smaller parties were waiting for 30 minutes, so we'd be putting in our waiting time too. No big deal but my colleague disagreed with me. You lied to the Amish, he said. <laughs> you shouldn't lie to the Amish. Like lying to a Presbyterian or a Baptist, no big deal. But to the Amish, no way. 
By the time they called our name, I said, Joe and his family will be here. It's not a big deal. Two minutes later, the announcement came. Graves party of 19. (laughs) I went back to the Amish man and said, yes, the Graves party. Well, you know, we're not all here yet. I was nervous now, and I may have even giggled. (laughs) I don't know why I love that little add-on, but I could just picture this dude giggling. (laughs) The man looked me in the eyes and said, did you lie? (laughs) This was a restaurant. This was the lobby of a restaurant. Dead silence. It felt as if we were in church. (laughs) That's unfortunate. The people immediately around us waited, wide-eyed and wondering. Everybody was watching me and the Amish guy. I replied softly, yes, I lied. Let me remind you that this is the preaching professor. I love this. Yes, I lied, I said. Come with me, he said. I couldn't imagine what he was going to do. What kind of punishment did the Amish hand out to liars? Like, I pictured stocks or canning. We followed him through the restaurant to the back where he opened a door to a banquet room, a huge table set with all kinds of different breads, jellies, and jams. And he offered a gentle smile. Have some bread. You're forgiven. Look, we come to this time. That's the message. We come to this table every week, we carry our burdens, and we examine our lives, and we have a lot of sin and shame and weight. And the Bible says that when you examine that stuff, if you are in Christ, what you're doing when you partake is proclaiming that, yes, I have sin and shame and guilt, but his blood and his body have taken it. I'm free. I am no longer a slave to my sin, which means if you're not in Christ, When you examine, you proclaim your own death. Scriptures say that the penalty for sin is death. Someone must die to pay for sin. The beauty of communion, the beauty of this table, is that someone did die for your sin. And every week it's a reminder that you walk in freedom, not slavery. Let's pray. Father, as we partake for these next few moments, as we reflect, as Ben and his team lead us into a time of just being able to sit back in some quiet and examine our lives, the enemy will be at work reminding us of our guilt and our shame. So in that moment, Father, may the elements we hold in our hands, the juice and the bread, would they remind us of the body and the blood that says that we are no longer slaves to the shame and the guilt that we oftentimes carry, would this time every single week be a place of great unity as we examine our relationships with one another, as we examine our own lives. We come to the conclusion that the invitation has been sent for us. The seat is open. And the words of our Savior invite us to experience good food, good friends, and gratitude. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.